So hey, it's May 2014 and it's the Oregon Journal Club and today we're talking about ticks in talks. Um, took a little bit of poetic leeway with that title, but it is the middle of the feasting season here in uh, pretty much throughout the country. I don't mean farmers markets are open, I mean the ticks are now out and they're having lunch on us. So we're going to talk about a variety of uh, diseases, both infectious, uh, which is a little outside of our realm, and some toxic. We're going to start off with those and a couple of other things to point out about tick bites, which is our springtime problem. So to start out with a problem that is mostly a Western, if not a fact, a Pacific Northwestern issue, is a description of a 60-year meta-analysis of tick paralysis in the United States. So we have our visiting resident, Beck. Tell us about that. All right. So as you said, my article was entitled A 60-Year Meta-Analysis of Tick Paralysis in the United States, uh, A Predictable, Preventable, and Often Misdiagnosed Poisoning. Um, so the article starts out with a little background on tick paralysis. Um, so they review that it's a uh, ascending neuromuscular paralysis. Um, with sensory sparing, um, and it's caused by salivary neurotoxins secreted by uh, ticks. Um, it also generally occurs in kind of predictable uh, uh, geographic region, regions in um, uh, North America and Australia as well during spring to summertime. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the um, involved tick is generally the Rocky Mountain Wood Tick. Um, and in the uh, um, and in the uh, southeast, it's usually um, the American dog tick. Um, in the past, uh, uh, tick paralysis generally occurred in girls younger than eight, um, and uh, it sounds like thus far the only big uh, systematic review of tick paralysis done in the United States was reported in Washington. In um, since then, there's been several case series and studies um, in uh, kids with uh, tick paralysis, uh, some of whom were misdiagnosed with uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, and uh, due to that had delays in getting to the right diagnosis. Um, so the objectives of uh, this uh, uh, meta-analysis paper were first to kind of Collectively analyze um, these uh, well-documented of well-documented cases of tick paralysis. Um, describe any evolving epidemiology of tick paralysis, and um, uh, hopefully use this information to, um, as they say, curtail in increasing misdiagnoses, um, and in doing so, avoid um, unnecessary therapies as a result of those. Uh, misdiagnoses. So what they did was basically um, go back and do a search and find a bunch of case reports, case series, um, observational studies, and longitudinal studies involving tick paralysis. They found nine papers, a total of 50 cases in those papers um, over a 16-year period. They then went and just stratified these cases based on um, kind of regions, seasons, tick attachment sites, um, the demographics of who was affected in these cases. They also looked at um, mean in, uh, incubation periods, how many of these cases were initially misdiagnosed, how many needed to go on and get mechanical vent uh, ventilation, and then any therapies that were delivered as a result of the misdiagnosis. They then went on also to kind of compare all of the newest cases to this old series from Washington. The, well, not that old, the one published in 1999. Um, and kind of say, are we doing better with diagnosis or are we doing worse with diagnosis? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, some of the cases were back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so their findings were basically that um, tick paralysis remained a pretty predictive disease in terms of regions. Um, most cases occurring in the United States, Pacific Northwest. Um, it also has occurred up in Canada, but they didn't really do Canadian cases as well. Um, it also remained very predictable in terms of seasonality. Um, 
with all the cases occurring in the spring and summer. Um, it also remained more common in females. 80% of the cases occurred in females, and 60% um, or 68% of all the cases were in girls younger than eight years old. Um, uh, attachment sites on the head and scalp continued to predominate as well, especially in the group who were, um, who were young females. Um, I believe that it said 48% uh, of all the ticks that were located were found on the scalp. Um, and then um, the, in terms of the distribution of the tick factor, um, it remained that the, uh, the Rocky Mountain wood tick was the only factor in the Western United States. Um, they did note, however, that in uh, adult patients with tick paralysis, the uh, attachment sites were often in kind of ectopic locations. Um, in terms of kind of attachment to disease onset, they found uh, about a kind of uh, mean of about five days from tick paralysis to, to onset of symptoms, um, which were generally like an influenza-type prodrome, followed by a uh, subsequent incubation period of about of a mean of 1.5 days to onset of paralysis. Um, and then at that point, from the point of tick removal to resolution of symptoms was another mean of about 1.5 days. Um, rarely was tick paralysis fatal. Um, it sounds like about 10% of the patients who were affected needed to go on to get mechanical ventilation. But in this series, I don't believe there were any deaths from tick paralysis. They mentioned a couple that were reported in the 1940s um, um, and that were due to uh, not having ventilators available. Um, so then they go on to talk about, you know, uh, outcomes that differ, differed substantially um, between these, the subset of Washington cases versus the newer cases. And they go on to point out that um, there were a lot more misdiagnoses recently of tick paralysis as Guillain-Barre syndrome. Some of, these, some of these patients went on to get IVIG or to... Um, or to get other invasive invasive therapies before the tick was ultimately ultimately found. Um, so the remainder of the paper is really kind of just a discussion of of tick paralysis. Uh, they kind of reiterate a lot of the stuff they went over um, earlier on in the paper. Um, but they kind of synthesized the information they were able to get from these prior studies and what they were able to, to get here, and they um, and they kind of reiterate that it's a it's a you know it's a recurrent neurotoxic poisoning um, occurring in regional areas um, with a distinct kind of viral type prodrome after you know with an incubation period of about five days, and then this onset of of paralysis. Um, and that it occurs primarily in younger females, but when it occurs in adults, the, the attachment sites are often um, ectopic. Um, they reiterate that, you know, when, when you see an ascending paralysis, that you should definitely search for a tick. Um, and that should be part of, part of the workup. Um, they then go on to discuss the differential diagnosis um, uh, for kind of an ascending flaccid paralysis or, or, a, or a, a, a paralysis without sensory loss. Um, and in terms of a, of a flaccid paralysis with preserved sensorium, there's a pretty small diagnosis. It's really tick paralysis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, potentially spinal cord tumor, botulism, and polio. And they go to discuss that polio is pretty much eradicated except for a few pockets, that botulism would be a descending paralysis. Um, and they basically leave us with tick paralysis and Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, which are really indistinguishable unless you find a tick or get a good history for a tick. Um, they go on to discuss uh, strategies for avoiding tick paralysis like 
pyrethrin and pyrethroid um, um, insect repellents. Um, they mentioned some limitations to the study, um, the fact that it was a retrospective review of prior, prior cases, that it was um, had a relatively small sample size, and that um, there's kind of an overrepresentation over of these Washington cases um, in the study. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a, well, 60 years of the stuff, but there's only 50 cases. There's probably many, many more cases. It's not that every primary care practitioner is calling these things in when they find them. But the big, I think, take-home message is you know, often there's a viral illness for a day or two. And so when you have this paralysis that's slowly ascending, Guillain-Barre jumps to people's mm -hmm. minds first, and then people get fixated on that. And it's just one of the ways that, you know, you can differentiate the two is buy a spinal tap. Of course, finding the tick is the easy way to do it. You get a spinal tap and there's lots of protein or high protein. You think Guillain-Barre, but the protein is normal. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, you know, it's going to end up being, um, you know, tick paralysis and someone needs to search and look in all the crevices and armpits and other places where ticks may hide and remove it. And the time-honored way of removing ticks is not to squeeze it or cover it in oil because that would cause it to regurgitate its feed and push more toxin into you. So the time-honored way has always been to take a forceps and grab it right at the level of the skin and gently pull back. But I always like to have a couple of other tricks in my bag of tricks. And there's two letters to the editor I found about some unique ways of removing ticks, which actually made some sense. So to talk about those, we have our visiting medical student, Ty. Thank you, Dr. Horace. So uh, the article that I'll be speaking about can be found on Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, issue 21, uh, from 2010, page 270 to 279. Um, so in this article, there's several groups that kind of wrote to the editor saying that they've approached the removal of ticks a different way than the conventional CDC recommendation of using fine uh, fine tip tweezers. Um, before I go on, I just want to kind of iterate what the common practice is right now today. The CDC recommends the removal of any ticks using a fine tip tweezers. The problem with that is, is that uh, the use of tweezers can actually cause traumatic damage to the thorax of the ticks resulting in actually regurgitation of infectious bodily fluids into the body. So um, although Right now, tweezers can effectively remove ticks. There is that ramification of possibly still having infectious uh, ramifications considering not all of the tick has been removed. Um, in the setting where there are ticks, where tick-borne infections are very unlikely, the common method would be to kind of uh, uh, rub some oil, parafilm, and petroleum jelly around that site of that bite site to kind of prevent the inflow of oxygen to kill the tick. But in the setting of, um, in locations where tick-borne infections are very endemic and they're very uh, common, it, it's in the best, it's in the, it's best to remove the tick as soon as possible. And so if we are not to use tweezers to remove the ticks, what can we do? So a group in uh, Rome, Italy decided to use uh, a single overhand knot fishing uh, line, a monofilament fishing line, to kind of eliminate the need to produce uh, trauma to the thorax of the tick. Uh, so what they do is they uh, insert a monofilament fishing line as close to the skin as possible between the skin and the mouth of the tick and you slowly kind of uh, pull it out, uh, hoping not to cause trauma to the body and to remove all uh, parts of the tick. Uh, what the study showed was um, it was actually a very limited study considering there's only 17 patients that were enrolled in the study considering uh, the people that actually carried out the study, um, ticks aren't very common. And so of the 17 that decided to use this fishing knot, and um, before, before the experiments carried out, the, the patients were verbally consented to saying, all right, we're going to try three times using this fishing knot method. If this doesn't work, we'll go ahead and use the tweezers anyways. Um, of those 17, one tick 
which is 5.8%, was removed on the first attempt. Seven, which is 41.1%, was removed on the second attempt. And nine, which is 52.9%, was removed on the third attempt, resulting in a 100% success rate. But of those 17 ticks that were removed, only 12 were completely removed, and five actually still had remnants um, inside the host uh, body at the side of the the, the bite, resulting in a, a success rate of 71%. Um, following that, the study, the people that were in charge of the study called up the patients at, at one, two, and four weeks to determine whether or not they had any clinical uh, sequelae of the tick bites, any kind of signs that would show that there's still local infection or any kind of systemic ramifications, and there were none. Um, so, it's kind of hard to address whether or not this technique is very effective considering we don't have a number of debate, we don't have a number to compare that to. Uh, we know that the use of tweezers is the common kind of go-to technique right now, but I haven't really been able to find any outside sources that state uh, in a large controlled trial the success rate of using twi uh, uh, tweezers and how they would get all the ticks out. Um, but for, uh, for them, it worked 71% of the time, and five out of the 17, they had to go in and use tweezers anyways, and so that kind of defeats the purpose of the fishing line. Um, the second group is well, actually... I think it's kind of an ingenious thing that they came up with. I mean, you, you know, you can do this in the field if you have a fishing line, you know, if you're, like, out in the wild, and maybe get the whole tick out without someone trying to crush it with their fingers or, you know, pliers or something like that, which is usually the bad uh, way to do it. Or, you know, once in the hospital, if you had access to, like, uh, suture material, you just take, like, a 5-0 suture and try to tie a knot right close to the <laughs> thing. And at least you tie it off so the tick can't, like, spit up their stomach contents and uh, toxins or infectious diseases. So, you know, cool, kind of a cool thought. I don't think anyone's ever going to do a double-blind trial to figure this one out. <laughs> but, uh, I thought it was, it was neat. And thank you, Dr. Farmers, for uh, bringing up sutures. That kind of leads me to the second group of people who... <laughs> Uh, decided to use a minimally invasive surgical technique to actually remove the tick. It was a group based in Greece, and the two individuals that kind of proposed it were Miyamoto and Hashimoto, and they re recommended the use of a minimally invasive surgical technique for any ticks known to be attached for longer than 24 hours, and in situations of failed prior attempts using ticks that resulted in the persistence of some element, some remnant of the tick. Uh, the reason why they decided to do this. Actually, the study doesn't actually say how many people were enrolled in the study. It pretty much says that during the last five years, they enrolled people, and they had a 100% success rate. Uh, really don't know how many people that were, so we don't really know how uh, what that means. But what they ended up doing was is that they ended up injecting some xylocaine, numbing up the skin, and then pretty much uh, excising a 2-millimeter diameter by a 3-millimeter deep uh, kind of piece of skin that goes to the level of dermis but doesn't really penetrate the subcutaneous tissue and remove the ticks on block with the with with the host tissue. The great thing about that is that you're not even touching the tick. One of the problems with tick removal is that by kind of agitating the tick, we're worried that there are going to be some regurgitation resulting in kind of uh, inflow infectious uh, agents into the, the human body, but when you're not even messing with the tick, you're not even touching, you're not stressing it, you're, you're just going working around it and removing that entire piece of skin, uh, the likelihood of you kind of inadvertently introducing infectious agents into the body is very minimal. Um, and so that's the procedure that they use. Uh, they followed up with their patients um, in, uh, in, I believe, I apologize. They followed up with their patients to see whether or not they had any kind of uh, signs of local infection or systemic infection, and uh, the patients did not have any res resulting in them coming to the conclusion that their process was 100% effective. Uh, the reason why these individuals bring up this technique is that they're trying to see whether or not this technique in a managed hospital setting or a managed medical office setting, why can't this be done in, for all ticks in general considering there's very, very little ramification, there's very little infection rate involved, and all it really takes is kind of excising a little bit of the skin, putting a 6-0 uh, suture and tying it off, and then voila, you're, you're healed. Uh, and so uh, they do make a good point, but I mean, if it was me and I had a choice, I would <laughs> probably want to use a tweezer first. Uh, <laughs> 
The only contraindication that they mention is that if the tick bite is at the level of the eyelid, then you can't really kind of excise that right. skin. But that's the only contraindication. Think some of the other areas that I wouldn't want to. Yeah. I can see doing this if you have someone who is paralyzed on a vent with a tick, and you really don't want them to regurgitate any more neurotoxin. Mm -hmm. Okay. But for every tick bite, like, you know, you'd end your childhood with like 12 mm -hmm. scars all over your body. That yeah. seems, that seems a little bit excessive. It's but just the one time. I could see, right, exactly, that's one time. I can see in some extreme circumstance, it's pretty cool. Although I'm surprised I didn't just do a punch biopsy around the tick. It would have been a lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> you know, those tend to, you just do a little punch yeah. biopsy, they tend to ellipse on their own based on the tension of the skin. Mm -hmm. you it's a lot easier than using a scalpel. But I guess you can try to get that punch box. I mean, oh, the ticks the feed. Tick. I mean, the ticks are tiny, yeah, but a feeding tick that's got this giant bloated backside yeah, to it that's yeah, full of true. your, you know, you know, innards juices. So the trick is to get underneath that yeah. safely and not have them, you know, don't coat it with, you know, cigarette, don't burn their back with a cigarette or all these other things that people <laughs> suggested over the years. Yeah. So two options if the tweezers aren't available or don't work um, for your armamentarium. Well, no discussion of uh, thanks. So no discussion of tick bites would not be complete without having a somewhat uh, synopsis of rocky mounted spotted fever, something that's often a board-like question, <laughs> but not that many people have seen it. In fact, it's not in the Rocky Mountains all that terribly much anymore. So. And our uh, a, a summary to, uh, for those of you who don't know, William Bergdorfer was from Rocky Mountain. Mm -hmm. And that's from whence the Bergdorferi organism was named. So tell us a little bit more about a brief summary of Rocky Mountain, how to figure it out and treat it in epidemiology is uh, Casey. Yeah. So, yeah, the article I looked at was going over kind of the whole epidemiology of it, uh, how the vectors... Uh, and transmission occur and signs and symptoms to look for and kind of the differential and treatment uh, associated with it. And so uh, as, as we've been talking about, this is a tick-borne uh, illness and uh, there's actually, they're identifying more and more species um, of these rickettsia that are causing um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever type of illness. And so it's, uh, there has been a rise in the number of cases, but it's kind of unclear uh, whether that's actual increased uh, proliferation of the rickettsia or if they're just we're picking it up more and we're starting to identify all these other species that cause it and so that was one of the first things they talked about um, related to the increasing frequency um, as uh, dr horowitz mentioned the distribution is actually uh, not so much in the rocky mountain uh, area it's actually kind of proliferated across the united states but more uh, central and uh, east coast uh, scenario is kind of like the major areas where it hits, but it has been known in the vast majority of all uh, America and even Central and South America as well. Um, so the pathogenesis of it, the rickettsia, will has a, a profinity and it likes to go for the endothelial cells, and that's actually where it causes the vast majority of the damage because um, it it once it gets into the cell and starts proliferating, then it uh, basically will in disrupt the endothelial integrity um, and leads to vascular permeability and that's whenever you start getting the uh, typical uh, spots and stuff that you see, which it's named after, is because the blood vessels are uh, starting to, the endothelial cells are lysing and you get these typical little spots that show up. Uh, particular areas that likes the small and medium vessels, blood vessels is kind of the areas it goes for. And you can also get it in the lung and brain. And when that happens, you can get uh, the interstitial fluid, which can't be drained because there's a very little lymphatic drainage, which normally takes care of a lot of the, the runoff. And so the lung and brain, you can get edema into the brain and the lung. So those are some of the more drastic and uh, severe uh, cases, but something to look for. Um, it's also a procoagulant and increases uh, fibrinolysis, consumption of the anticoagulants and platelet activation. And one of the characteristic things you will see early on is thrombocytopenia. It's one of the things that once you see thrombocytopenia, you need to, you know, along with this character characteristic rash, you need to uh, keep it in mind. Um, although 
One thing that was interesting is that acute to DIC is pretty rare in Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Uh, so if you see DIC, you want to be thinking of other things like meningiococcemia and things like that. So um, they went through a whole, a lot of the actual cell level, uh, what's going to happen, uh, which is interesting to read, but we'll kind of skip that for now. Um, and basically it will just kind of proliferate and it goes from cell to cell, uh, breaking up the endothelial uh, membrane. And that's whenever you start getting lysis of cells and a lot of these systemic symptoms. So things that you typically see, one of the first things you'll see is a fever. And these are typically in children, uh, at least around 97% of children will have a fever with the, and hence the name spotted fever. Um, and often it ex exceeds uh, 102 or 38.9 degrees Celsius. So these are probably sick looking kids. Um, and at that time, 95% of kids will have a rash uh, some point during the disease, and uh, surprisingly, only 80% of adults will have a rash, and so that's something to keep in mind, even though they don't have the rash, you have to keep it in your differential. Um, the rash can show up either kind of in children, it could be the first day, second day, or kind of anywhere throughout the illness, um, so you got to think hard on these, and when it does show up, it typically starts out as a small blanching pink macule, on the ankles, wrists, and forearms. Um, and then later on, you get the petechial uh, component of it. Um, and that's actually only seen in about 60% of kids, so not all of them get the petechial type of things. Um, it does spare the face, which can help distinguish it from other uh, illnesses and stuff like that, but it can affect the palms and soles of the feet. Um, headache is another one of the big things to look out for. Uh, and this is often... With, in children who are young, uh, it can be it show up as agitation and stuff because they can't, they may not be able to verbalize their headache. Uh, so you need to keep an eye out for that. Um, and then uh, meningi uh, um, meningeal signs uh, are noted in about 16% of the cases, is kind of the number they gave. So not not uncommon there. So like I mentioned earlier, things you want to look for in the lab findings are thrombocytopenia. Um, it it uh, comes from whenever they are causing all this coagulation, procoagulant effect. The other thing is hyponatremia. Um, oftentimes they can be uh, below 130, and that's uh, suspected from the increased uh, capillary le leakage, and basically everything is just flowing out into the tissue, and so your uh, sodium level is going to go down. Um, creatinine and stuff can go up. Usually that's from uh, renal insufficiency, and it can be from either ischemic related to their necrosis or uh, vasculitis, the renal cells. Um, so another thing to keep in mind. And then like I said earlier, watching for cerebral edema, uh, given that it can't drain there. Typically you don't have to image these people unless there's severe uh, altered mental status. And then you would typically see diffuse white matter changes and then the effects of cerebral edema there. So diagnostic, one thing important before I talk about that is the diagnostics, you don't wanna wait for diagnostic criteria before treating because this is, because a lot of these take time to get back, you want to actually start treating empirically, and then uh, you can start testing after that. So two types, you can do a skin biopsy, and you can also do serologic testing. Uh, serologic testing involves looking for IgM and IgG antibodies, but typically these don't start developing. You won't see a high rise until the second week of illness, and that's why you don't want to wait before those come back, because you may not get them back in time. And then you can do a skin biopsy, and uh, of the rash spot, and, and that one is 100% specific and 70% sensitive. So um, you'll be careful on that one. But So other things to think of, the differential with this is uh, Ehrlichia is another one. That's the Rocky Mountain spotless fever, um, mm -hmm. although it can have a rash too. Um, and so that's one of the things to keep in mind. Um, and then there's a whole host of other things. Other things that can mimic it are like EBV virus, um, the enteroviruses, uh, secondary syphilis. Those are, uh, they can sometimes look like it. Um, and then petechial rash, anytime you get that, you want to think of uh, DIC, a disseminated gonococcal infection, meningococcemia, group A strep can do it. Um, and then rashes on the palms and soles of their feet. You want to think of bacterial endocarditis secondary syphilis, rat bite fever, which I hadn't thought of before, but that's awesome. Um, and then ehrlichiosis and meningococcemia again. The treatment of choice is doxycycline, 
And this is even in young children. This is not in contraindication because typically they can because of the staining of the teeth. But the short duration and just the severity of this outweighs the potential harm from doxycycline. So that is the treatment of choice. Um, and you want to give it to them. Uh, if you suspect it, it's also, uh, you want to, if you suspect potential meningococcemia, you want to add a third generation cephalosporin to kind of cover that as well. Uh, typical dose is 2.2 milligrams uh, per kilogram, and you do that twice a day uh, for children. And adults, you can go up to 200 mi uh, milligrams twice a day. And typically, you're treating them for 5 to 10 days uh, throughout that time. So most of these people do very well uh, because we're starting to think of it a little bit more and starting empiric treatment. Uh, there's only been the fatalities went down from 2% in the 90s to down to 0.3% uh, in 2007 was the latest data that was cited here. Uh, so it's getting a little bit better, and the, the biggest risk of death was delay in treatment. That's why you treat it early and quick. So uh, long-term sequelae, uh, you can get the neurologic deficits is the most common one um, related to the cerebral edema. And they talk about prevention, which is some of the things we talked about here, about how to take the tick off, but you can also use uh, permethrin treated clothing. Uh, you wash it and it actually does pretty well. Uh, up to 20 washes, um, it can stay on there. And wearing white light and wearing light colored clothing apparently is also what they recommend. So. All right, well good. Yeah, we, we rarely ever get called on these cases, but where I think we sometimes get called is someone's concerned about giving doxycycline to a child and you know the recommendation across the board from all these groups are know, a 10-day course of doxycycline and a kid you suspect any rickettsial diseases or others is indicated that's the primary drug of choice and the other options like macrolides and sulfonamides are not appropriate. You really should go straight, straight to doxy. So good. So something, um, you know, there are a variety of these other infections that are not Rocky Mounted, like you say, spotless <coughs> fevers, sometimes called golf course fevers. And to talk about at least a couple of these and how they present not just in kids, but in pregnant women and what to do there where the anxiety about giving doxycycline maybe even higher is uh, Annette. All right, so we got ehrlichiosis here, uh, which was reclassified as anaplasma um, which is HDA, uh, which was previously part of the HDE, which HDE is caused by ehrlichiosis fences. Um, so it turns out that the HDA is caused by Exodes scapularis, which is in the eastern and upper Midwest, Midwestern United States, and then Exodes pacificus out in western United States. Um, the concerning part in the eastern and upper Midwest is that it's also the carrier for both Ehrlichiosis, Babesia microti, as well as Borrelia burgdorferi. So it can carry a whole bunch of different tick-borne illnesses which can lead to co-infection. And it turns out that 10% of patients who have HDA can actually have Lyme disease or babesiosis. And if you actually, patient diagnosed with HDA, up to 75% of them actually have a report a tick bite. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a ton of information available of these infections in the setting of pregnancy. They go on to discuss the case of a 28-year-old female who was 12 weeks pregnant, came in with a one-week history of um, generalized not feeling well, fever, malaise, and alphragias. They suspected HGA or Lyme disease based on the prevalence of tick disease in the area, and her antibody titer for HGA was positive with negative Lyme. So she was started on rifampin, 300 milligrams twice daily for 10 days, and had follow-up in maternal fetal medicine. They suspected co-infection, so she was retested for uh, Lyme, which was uh, negative as well. And then she was tested for Babesia as well. Uh, she had a unremarkable pregnancy and delivered a full-term male. Um, her PCR testing um, of the child were negative, and the child was um, healthy and had no complications at six months. So they go on to actually review the literature for both HGA, Lyme, HDE, and Babesiosis. Um, so when they talked about the clinical presentation is mild to severe, like we've seen with all these illnesses, fever, malaise, vomiting, and arthralgias. There's a rash uh, for Lyme disease. Uh, and then you can have neurosymptoms in about 1% of cases. 
And there's a spectrum of laboratory abnormalities. You can have thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, and elevations in serum transaminases. Um, and uh, turns out that tick-borne uh, disease can be severe in pregnancy because we all know that they're immunosuppressed. So they're now they're going to be talked about uh, human granulocytic anaplasmosis, uh, spring and summer, and it's actually really been described since 1994. So it's sort of a newcomer in the disease world. Although I'm sure it's been around, just nobody knew what it was. Um, diagnosis for this one, uh, they talk about uh, how blood smears as well as PCR are the most um, sensitive early on. And serologic testing is really only significant at 15 days after the illness. So you need to get blood samples for PCR. And uh, if you're getting serologic testing, you're looking at indirect fluorescent antibody methods. You're looking for a fourfold increase. And uh, it turns out that IgM can be reactive up to 50 days post-exposure. And uh, uh, luckily, though, PCR has sort of become the choice testing for this. And again, this is not going to come back to you well after the fact that the person's been gone and probably getting better. Um, they talk about just getting folks started on empiric treatment and that you should basically suspect it clinically and with supporting evidence by either leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, or elevated aminotransferases. Treatment ideally is uh, tetracycline derivatives, and we've talked about how there's a danger, you know, they, everybody's concerned about the child and uh, they don't sort of want to give it due to the malformation of teeth and bone and potential hepatotoxicity and pancreatitis in the mother. Um, it's been used both tetracycline and doxycycline. Um, there's no efficacy trials, and then rifampin's also been used for the treatment. Uh, of note, rifampin does not work on Lyme disease. So if you have co-infection with Lyme disease, you need to add amoxicillin or cefiroxine. Uh, turns out that there is some evidence for perinatal transmission, uh, both in other species, and then there's uh, cases in which transplacental transmission is suspected. Um, Although, unfortunately, not many of the newborns were actually tested to see if they actually had symptoms. They actually had a really nice table. Is uh, this you, Horowitz? Or is it like no, Horowitz? no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's actually multiple cases that have been published. I think the gist of the table is that all trimesters should probably get uh, treated. And that... Uh, um, since treatment may prevent transmission, even though there were some cases in which treatment occurred and there was still transmission. Then we're going to talk about Lyme disease. Uh, erythema migrans is the classic clinical finding that's going to make you suspicious. Uh, ELISA is usually what's used, although it's got pretty lousy uh, sensitivities, a little bit better specificities. And uh, it's confirmed with a Western blot. So you should uh, do an ELISA plus serologies and part of the testing. And unfortunately, PCR is not up to date on this one. So it's all going to be titers as well as the ELISA screening. Um, treatment, you can do doxyamoxicillin or cefiroxamine. And they believe amoxicillin or cefiroxamine are the best options for pregnant women. However, if uh, as long as there's no neurological deficits. And some folks actually sort of say, if you've been bit by a tick and you're pregnant, you should get a 10-day course of amoxicillin, which I thought that was a pretty bold statement. However, if you look at the, um, the table in which they talked about all of the exposures, um, you probably should treat in all trimesters and you should be pretty aggressive because all of the reported cases, there was significant morbidity and mortality. Uh, I want to say one, two, three, four out of the eight died. Mm. So I would follow their beliefs and treat everybody potentially. Um, perinatal transmission, they have found organisms both post-mortem and in the placenta. Um, and the kids had uh, neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. They had cardiac abnormalities. They actually found specimens that had uh, fire keats post-mortem, so after, long after the infection, initial infection, the child was still having fire keats. Then there's 
babesiosis, uh, malaria-like illness. Uh, you have an intraerythrosic uh, protozoan parasite. Northeastern United States uh, overlaps with Lyme disease. It's an emergent infectious disease in the U.S. You can have pretty asymptomatic illness all the way to severe, very much a viral process with anemia, and you can have elevated uh, enzymes at about 50% of folks. And uh, you also have a very high likelihood of co-infection with Lyme disease. Confirmation, uh, you can actually identify it on a gram stain. Uh, you're looking for cancer staining, and you'll see little inclusions. Uh, PCR is also recommended, and there are some serologies available. You need an acute phase rise in your IgG. Um, this one's sort of treated with a combo of a tobaclon plus acythro or clinda plus quinine. Uh, there are um, published cases in which uh, prenatal treatment actually improves improved infant outcome, though there's also infected neonates whose mothers tested positive postpartum when they were not treated during pregnancy. So there's a concern for perinatal transmission. And then the last one they talked about was human monocytic ehrlichiosis, in which uh, you're going to do indirect fluorescent antibody testing. Um, you got to keep in mind that that one's actually also going to potentially react with HDI because they're so similar and were called the same disease for a very long time. You're looking for morula or intracytoplasmic inclusion uh, in some of these patients, and it's going to be a clinical diagnosis. Turns out uh, mom was treated in the cases that are published, mom was treated with doxy, no long-term effects in the child at one year. And in this particular case, it looks like mom not being treated in the first trimester, the child was healthy and had no adverse outcomes. The rest of them were all third trimesters with no treatment on mom. Some of them were healthy, but most of them actually had uh, parasites present anywhere between 26 days up until five weeks after <coughs> the child was born. And there had been a significant period where mom was no longer symptomatic when they were born. This is somebody that you probably should treat. So, at conclusion, uh, we should uh, advise women to prevention is the best policy. So they probably should be wearing protective clothing if they're outside, and they should be pretty stringent about checking their bodies for tick presence. If you have flu-like symptoms in the summer when you don't expect the, uh, the flu to be around, you should definitely think of uh, tick-borne illness. And uh, co-infection is a big possibility, so if you think of one, you probably should send off whatever is available in your region. And uh, you should treat mom based on what's going to make mom get better, and the doxies and tetracyclines, yes, they have complications potentially later down the road, but we want to make sure that everybody's treated appropriately. And good. So a, a sort of dizzying array of diseases that are spread by ticks from Babesia to spirochetes to rickettsia to others. And those are just the ones that are limited within the United States worldwide. There's maybe 20 to 30 other ones as well. And the antibiotics that we choose for each of those vectors and organisms are a little bit different. So it's not just doxycycline is the one size fits all for, for these diseases. So you have to be in close touch with your ID folks and what's endemic in your area or noted in your area. We've had some outbreaks already this year of some of these events, anaplasmosis and others. So um, we don't see that much out west, but there's enough that sometimes we shouldn't just write somebody with muscle aches and a fever off as a viral illness because it may not, in fact, be viral. And in fact, some of these can actually be quite serious. So to fill us in on a... Um, a newer emerging agent amongst these, um, which causes a very serious outcome, is our fellow Jen. So, yeah, this is the newest one that we've identified. So this is by the organism Borrelia miyamotoi. Um, so this is an article from Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, Borrelia miyamotoi infection presenting as human granulocytic anaplasmosis. Um, so this is a, a case series of two patients that they um, had and report on. Um, just as a little bit of a background, 
um, most of these happen or, you know, are, are the most common in the Northeast. And specifically, deer ticks um, are a huge vector for, like Zane said, multiple different um, diseases. So the deer ticks actually are vectors for five different diseases, Lyme disease, babesiosis, um, HGA, um, deer tick virus encephalitis, and then this new one, Borrelia miyamotoi. Um, and it tends to cause a meningoencephalitis. Um, the, as a little bit of a background, I know Annette talked a little bit about anaplasmosis, so I'm not going to get into it too much. Um, but this one is essentially, um, the reason I'm talking about it is because these patients were both misdiagnosed with this anaplasmosis instead of this disease until they figured it out. Um, but the, what you would typically see with uh, anaplasmosis is you would see acute febrile illness, myalgias, headaches, shaking, chills, malaise. And then they're usually diagnosed um, by the intragranulocytic bacteria clusters on the GIMSA stain, um, and then usually confirmed by PCR. Um, most of these patients have um, leukopenia with a left shift, they have thrombocytopenia, and then of significance, they have elevated AST and, and lactate dehydrogenase in most of these patients. Um, they usually um, defervesce within 24 hours um, after receiving doxycycline, which is also another important distinguishing characteristic in these patients. Um, so in contrast, um, there's this new one. So the, these two patients that they talk about um, were both from the Northeast United States. They were both presumptively diagnosed with um, HGA, and they were treated with doxy. However, they did not respond to doxy within 24 hours as we would have expected, which first kind of triggered their, their treat, treating providers to, um, you know, ask, is, is this really HGA? Um, in addition, they did do serologic testing and they couldn't find any molecular evidence for um, the A phagocytophilum infection um, or for seroconversion. So, um, also just as a little bit of a background about this new agent, um, I don't, they didn't really talk about it too much in the intro of this paper, but I did, I just had to go look it up because I had never heard of this before. But it was first actually, the first human case was reported in Russia in 2011, so this is a, a really fairly new um, agent. It was detected in the Ixodes scapularis tick in 2001, but no human infections until 2011 but we now have seen a couple cases in the United States. Um, and these that we have discovered are usually identified by PCR, um, but obviously that's you know, not a routine test that everybody can do, so diagnosis can be a little bit difficult. So their case report, um, their first patient was a 61-year-old. Um, this was August 2012. Fever, shaking chills for 48 hours, frontal headache, photophobia, myalgia, arthralgia, anorexia, um, kind of sounds like a flu-like illness. Um, he was admitted to the hospital. He did have some chest pain that resolved um, within the first day of admission, um, but continued to have drenching sweats, sweats and fevers. He was fairly ill-looking. He was flushed, diaphoretic, and dehydrated. Uh, his temp was 38.5. Uh, heart rate was 90. Um, his physical exam was really significant only for some tachycardia. He had no rashes other than uh, some psoriatic lesions. Um, there was no really strong um, history of any tick exposure. Um, lived with his family. No one else was sick. He did have a dog, but also no comment on whether the dog had a tick. Um, his lab analysis showed some thrombocytopenia, um, a leukopenia with a left shift. Um, he had... Uh, AST, ALT, and CK that were all elevated. And the rest of his, you know, standard diagnostic workup was negative. So he got some IV fluids. He got IV doxycycline, again, with a presumptive diagnosis of HGA. Um, and it took three days um, after starting therapy, um, but he, and he was still febrile. So there was a significant delay in, in uh, response. Um, one week later, follow-up, um, his symptoms had completely resolved by that point. Um, the second patient was an 87-year-old male uh, in good health. This was June 2011, fever, malaise, generally kind of a similar uh, presentation. He was a little short of breath. Um, he did not have a headache. He just kind of felt stiff. Um, this one was a little bit more complicated in that he did have a history of babesiosis in 2010 um, and was treated with atovacone and azithromycin. Um, 
he was a, a domestic <coughs> gardener and did landscaping, um, but otherwise uh, that was most, most of his outdoor exposure. His vital signs were, were fairly normal. Um, physical exam was pretty normal. Um, there was no rashes, no erythema migraines, um, but he did have some scattered, <coughs> scattered ecchymoses. Um, he also had a soft uh, systolic murmur. Um, on his workup, he had leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, uh, mild anemia. AST was greatly elevated again, again with presumptive diagnosis HDA, got some doxycycline. Um, and he also um, took uh, a little while with a delayed response to the doxycycline. Um, he had a bunch of other blood tests, monospot, um, CMV, um, uh, IgG, and IgM were negative. Epstein-Barr uh, was negative. Um, and then rickettsii, rickettsii was also negative. Um, he was discharged, um, again, uh, with a, a two-week course of, of uh, doxycycline and had a full recovery. So those were the two cases. Um, they talk a little bit in the method section about their um, antibody studies and the PCR studies that they, they did. Essentially, without getting too detailed, what they did is they did both antibody studies and PCR for not only this new agent, but also for all of the other agents, just to kind of help see if we could rule out the other ones to really, really uh, nail down exactly what, this, what the agent is. Um, so they did do PCR testing um, for a bunch of these, um, including the anaplasmosis, the aphagocytophyllum. Um, and then they also did the Borrelia species, Borrelia burgdorferi, and Miyamotai. Um, so their seriologic findings in patient one, um, the Burgdor Borrelia burgdorferi was negative. Um, serologic testing for antibiotics for the anaplasmosis and E. chaffimsins was negative. Um, also B. macrotai. Um, they did some immunoassays and immunoblots for uh, Borrelia burgdorferi with L, so were negative. Essentially everything else was negative. Um, patient two, um, Borrelia burgdorferi antigen was negative, um, but their IgG um, was positive. Um, Yeah. Um, so the only, actually, the only reactivity um, against co-infections was against B. microti, um, which was positive, but that makes sense because he did have a known history of BBCosis. Um, they also did repeat blood tests um, four months after, um, and they did repeat uh, immunobody, immunobody and uh, uh, PCR at that time. And essentially was the, the Borrelia burgdorferi was positive for IgM at that time. So, and then the IgG immunoblot at that time also suggested vaccination against Lyme disease. So, uh, again, they discuss a little bit about the, the various ways that we can detect these. Essentially, it's complicated because like we've discussed, when you're testing for antibodies, mm -hmm. it takes a while to develop. Um, and it's not routine in, in most places, so um, it's sometimes difficult to get. And PCR is not standard for all of the agents. So uh, in general, um, we have this new um, uh, agent that is uh, causing a meningoencephalitis-type picture um, in patients. And I think the important things to take away from it are um, if you have a patient who has... Um, fever, myalgia, um, and kind of a flu-like illness, but they also have significantly elevated um, uh, liver function tests and or uh, a left shift on their, C their CBC, um, you might want to consider possibly this new agent. And also, if they're not responding to doxycycline immediately, um, that would also be a tip-off that it could be this new, new agent. Yeah, so just one more obscure thing to worry about with possible tick bites and exposures in the summertime. It's, it's almost harder to work up someone who has a fever in the summer than it is in the winter where many things are flu and pneumonia. As far as the liver functions, I just kind of briefly wanted to address that because a lot of these papers keep saying HDA and this disease have elevated liver functions. They keep using the word substantial. 
which may mean something different to an infectious disease person than to a toxicologist. So in patient one, I mean, their highest AST was 177, and in patient two, it was 234. So there, there are rises in their liver functions, but they're not like um, Tylenol toxicity through the roof like we would experience. I can't imagine we'll get called with a differential diagnosis of somebody who has elder liver functions and say, hmm, have you considered HGA for these patients? Um, although, with a fever, maybe. Um, so lastly, I wanted to wade into a controversial issue. So um, let me preface that by saying that Lyme disease, of course, is a very serious disease. People get acute Lyme disease. People have complications of Lyme disease that can be quite serious, including carditis and encephalitis and a variety of other problems. And it can be very difficult to diagnose because the assays that are used can be delayed in how they turn positive. Uh, the original PCR could be negative. You have to wait for the Western blot to come back to turn positive, and then it may remain positive for a long time. So enter into that um, is this concept of chronic Lyme disease. And really this is touted as a review article, but it's a little bit more of an opinion piece by the Ad Hoc International Lyme Dis Disease Group in the New England Journal in 2007. There's been a lot been written on this. You can go all over the internet on chronic Lyme disease. There's lots and lots of stuff, and it's really controversial. So um, it's called a critical appraisal of, quote, chronic Lyme disease, end quote. So Lyme disease is, is the most common tick-borne infection. It's caused by, as we mentioned, Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, it's got this nice skin lesion, which you all know is erythema migrans, or EM, and it's caused many of the things I just talked about, chronic osteoarticular arthritis, cardiac manifestations, and patients can be ill and quite ill with these. However, there is a minority of these, despite making the diagnosis and getting antibiotic treatment, that persist in having fatigue, muscle pain, concentrating abilities, and a whole bunch of other vague symptoms. And these can be mild, they can get better, they may be persistent, and they've been called everything from post-Lyme disease syndrome to chronic Lyme disease, neither of which term is really honestly recognized as a medical term, but often in the lay literature and a variety of other alternative medical providers uh, as well. So the preferred term is late Lyme disease for people who have persistent um, Lyme disease, and there can be a Borreliae encephalomyelitis, as we've heard with this, these other cases, and then arthritis can be recurrent and persistent. So all these things may be part of late Lyme disease. However, there's a small number of practitioners, many of which are indeed uh, uh, physicians. They often designate themselves as, quote, Lyme literate physicians, and they believe that there's persistent infection, not just manifestations, with Bergdorferi. And many of them have all resorted to a variety of treatment things, some of which include ongoing intravenous antibiotics for prolonged durations of time. And they say, of course, as they will go to in this paper, there's really no evidence that this entity exists. So chronic Lyme disease is based solely on the clinical judgment of vague criteria that are put forth by a variety of these websites websites and physicians. It's not validated by any laboratory studies, and it's all, whether patients really have it or not, or even live in an area where Lyme disease is endemic, has been questioned in many of these cases. Um, the thought by these physicians is they have a chronic persistent infection, not just an inflammation with the Burgdorferi. Um, and it's very un, it's unproven and very improbable that a chronic infection occurs in the absence of ongoing antibodies against P. burgdorferi, and negative tests are often attributed to theories that the infection itself suppresses any humoral immune response in these patients. Uh, we already mentioned you should get a two-tier um, Western blot test with rising antibodies to make the acute diagnosis. However, many of these alternative physicians rely on Lyme specialty laboratories, much like we sometimes run into with heavy metal poisoning. And in fact, some of these 
websites go on to talk about some of the cross-reactivity that some of these patients indeed have heavy metal poisoning as well as chronic Lyme disease and a variety of other uh, these chronic undiagnosable conditions. They often get treated for months with IV antibiotics or oral antibiotics. Some of them are treated with all sorts of odd things like bismuth injections and um, veterinary medicines that have been used to kill ticks and fleas. Um, so it's all over the map. But he does go through um, what he calls four categories. Or the group goes through four categories of how these seem to play out in both the lay and published literature. So category one disease really don't have any objective manifestations or laboratory evidence of a true infection. Their symptoms are nonspecific, fever, sweats, aches, chills, palpitations, abdominal pain, irritability, that indeed 10% of the population shares. <laughs> um, and so it's very hard to pin this down and what this really means. Category two is often illnesses or syndromes that are in fact something else than Lyme disease, often in patients who refuse to accept the diagnosis of the other illness, and one of the common ones is multiple sclerosis with waxing and waning um, neurologic problems that um, may be misdiagnosed. Um, the category three are those who probably had Lyme disease at some point, probably got treated, but there's equivocal evidence that they have any sort of ongoing infection with the Bogdorferi. Um, and some clinicians out of sort of unknown what to do often treat these patients with empiric antibiotics for longer periods of time. And then category four patients are um, basically patients who maybe had a rash or erythema migraines, in fact, of diagnosis objectively and uh, may or may not have this disease or, or anything else. So Basically, there have been some control trials in patients with real Lyme disease, and there's been three of them. So the punchline for them is really antibiotics don't benefit these when you look at some true scientific objective criteria. One of these trials had 78 patients, another trial had 51 patients. They were diagnosed usually with erythema migraines. They often got a month of ceftriaxone, IV, followed by two months of doxy orally for a total of three months. And when they looked at a variety of these health outcome study scores, there really wasn't any difference in either of these two groups of patients. There was one more trial where there was maybe a subtle difference between the groups of 55 patients. They had an 11-item question, questionnaire done after treatment for this documented Lyme disease, who then either received ceftriaxone or an IV placebo for 28 days. And although there was a slight reduction in a, a sort of somewhat arbitrary fatigue severity in the ceftriaxone group that did, to be fair, have a p-value of 0.01, there was no other significant improvement in some of these other harder things like cognitive functioning. And the author of the study, in fact, concluded that probably repeated courses of antibiotics are not indicated for these persistent symptoms. Um, so those are the trials that are out there. They go through some of the theories that have come and gone, and I'm, I'm going to not wade into them too uh, deeply uh, other than it's probably unlikely that there really is a true persistent occult infection that has survived the antibiosis for this period of time that has caused these problems, has failed to cause antibodies that can only be tested in labs that are not FDA-approved labs. And so calls a degree of suspicion about the people who um, derive these things. So to add some of the controversy to this, um, the American, the Infectious Disease Society of America came down with very clear-cut evidence-based guidelines that this is not a real entity. And he kind of goes over that you should counsel your patients to say that we don't know enough, but we certainly Ongoing antibiosis for our, for years and years is not indicated. Now, the lay people and support groups and the media and testimonials who believe in the chronic Lyme disease, including several physicians, board-certified physicians, have created their own sort of alternative anti-science universe that um, has made some headway in one the Attorney General of Connecticut had begun an antitrust lawsuit 
against the Infectious Disease Society saying that by propagating this evidence-based medicine guideline, they're essentially directing how everyone should be treated and the insurance companies, of course, follow that and how who gets paid for this and it should be up to the doctor's discretion to decide how long to treat you and what sort of guidelines they want to believe and whatnot. And they've gone back and forth and I looked at some of the websites on that, which is not covered in this paper, but this was this ongoing multi-year battle that resulted in some settlements and some finger pointing. There's been legislation that's been brought forward in many states with congressmen and people who have been swayed by these support groups and the media presence of many of these patients whose claim that they are, are in fact ill and wheelchair bound and terribly immobilized. And some of them were highly functioning individuals who went on one summer vacation and got a tick bite and were horribly immobilized by some chronic illness that is yet undiagnosed. But now, because there's doctors willing to call it chronic Lyme disease, believe very firmly that chronic Lyme disease in their life needs to be treated with these IV antibiotics and why should the insurance companies and someone like an infectious disease society of America come out with these guidelines saying that they are not in fact true. They've created their own Lyme disease society and they've had list doctors you can go to that are Lyme literate doctors. There are books that have been written on this. There are people who have appeared on, you know, the typical medical type of uh, lay public shows. So this is indeed a very, very, very controversial thing. Um, several physicians have been, um, I've covered in this article, have their licenses suspended or looked at for doing some of these very significant off-the-wall treatments like bismuth injections and, and whatnot that some of these people advocate. But there is, and I, the only reason I bring this up is because the main doctor proposing this is another guy named Horowitz, <laughs> who is not related to me, and I don't want to get your email or your or your or your or any contact. Is that um, he's claimed to, to have treated um, over twelve thousand patients and has written a book about this, and um, this is a very controversial subject that obviously, despite three big trials, may need some more research. I want to keep it a complete open mind here. Um, but so far to date, we have not proved the existence of an infection that lasts despite multiple courses of antibiosis that causes all the cluster of symptoms that have been described in, in these cases and um, is reminiscent of sort of chronic candidemia, which was a fad years ago, or other uh, disease entities such as that. So that's the, your tick season for you um, as you go out there and cover up and use your... Um, insect repellents. So, see you next time. <laughs>